what is great defined to me, and I heard this from what I would consider the greatest United States hammer throw coach ever, Judd Logan, the late Judd Logan, who was a four-time Olympian in the hammer. He is the one who defined great coaches are defined by great players, great athletes. There's a lot of very good coaches, but the great ones generally are surrounded by great athletes. In his case, he was smart enough that he was able to recruit his talent. Yeah, on my hustle, keeping it going. This what you need. Yes, indeed. This is coaching your coaching, hosted by Yash, the podcast, interviewing the elite high school, collegiate, and professional athletes, trainers, and doctors. Really, it's the dopest info that you need. This is coaching your coaching. Let's go. I just hit the recording because, Coach, you're such a good speaker, and I tell you're so passionate about it. I just hit record because I wanted to make sure we got all that. So let me get you introduced right oh, here. Man, you're not, hey, let me just tell you. Perfect. Yeah, let me just tell you, brother, man, I've been on so many. I've got an assistant or a friend of mine who's done some research. I've been over well over 100 podcasts. And wow. here's some of the things you'll know. <laughs> Usually I'll set the record for what your longest podcast is. I don't uh-huh. know if that's good or bad. <laughs> and two is we'll talk before we go in and they're like, damn, I should have hit record. So you're actually smarter than most of them because you've already hit record. Exactly. <laughs> I'm excited about that. So we're off to a good start here. But let me just highlight a couple yeah. of things right here for the audience, just because you have literally the most in-depth bio I've ever seen. In fact, I wanted to highlight something here where <laughs> you got four NSCA awards and you had to specify how big each of them were because they all were so big. So let's look at this real quick. So NSCA, Professional Strength and Conditioning Coach of the Year, and this is at the national, international level. Okay, now we go number two. NSCA, Collegiate Strength and Conditioning Coach of the Year at a national level. The NSCA, Mountain West Conference Strength Coach of the Year. And lastly, the NSCA, Big West Conference Strength Coach of the Year. So let's start right there. Obviously, lead coach Brian Shaw, who was the four-time world's strongest man, and talk about a record with the NFL and, of course, with so many college teams. So let's hit the NFL first. Head strength and conditioning coach, Carolina Panthers. Had a ton of stints as directors, sports performance head coaches, and strength and conditioning coaches for University of Louisville, ASU, University of Utah, Boise State, and also Pinecrest Prep School. So why don't we just dive right into it, man? Coach, what do you think separates... Oh. Great coaches from good coaches. Great coaches is very easy to define. You're only a great coach if you got great players. I mean, that's just a simple fact. How do you define greatness in different ways? I mean, I think it's interesting because you as a coach may be able to do things that resonate and then become innovative processes in your profession. And I was fortunate enough to do that twice in programming. But the truth of the matter is, when you're talking about good versus great coaches, coaches rely on athletes for their successes. And you have to understand that. So when someone says you're a great coach, generally, they're talking about success and failures and wins and losses in team sports. That is crucial to understand that. And a lot of times that's going to be based off the capabilities of your athletes. Now, that's not to say that some people aren't better technical teachers. That's not to say some coaches are not better programmers. That's not to say that some coaches are not better culture builders. Everybody usually has their defined gift. 
and that's the uh, undescribable and unexplainable things that you bring to the game. But overall, we throw terms out a lot of times and a lot of professions that doesn't even make sense. Like, oh, he's the GOAT. He's the GOAT. How many frigging GOATs can there be, right? Like, <laughs> or when you see these lists of the top 10 strength coaches, well, that's that guy's top 10. And if you don't believe in what he believes in, you ain't getting on that top 10 list. I mean, I've seen lists that come out, the top 30 college strength coaches in the country, but yet there's three guys on the list that have been fired for two years. Like, so you just can't make some of this stuff up. And that's why I don't, I don't get caught up with that. I've been very fortunate that I've been recognized a lot, but a lot of that's been because I've been very fortunate to be around athletes who believed in what we did. And I think that we helped them enough that we were able to give them a better product when they stepped on the field. But at the end of the day, I didn't coach them in their sport. So someone else is also directed into me being allegedly great, right? So that's what I think you learn over a period of time. That's not to say you don't think that way when you're 24 years old, just getting in the field and people start latching on. Oh, that guy's great. That guy's great. Ho, ho. Now, why is he great? Because he's with Alabama football? <laughs> I mean, that, that's easy. Not, nothing against it. But go to Division Three and try to be great when you have to develop the talent, not talent given to you. So there's a lot of things that I think need to be peel the onion. I'm a big, I, you'll hear me a lot of things. When I decipher stuff and I make decisions on stuff, a lot of people get upset. Like they think, oh, you're dogging this dude. Or you're, you don't think this guy's worth anything. No, that's not what it is. I respect a lot of people that I've never read their work just because I know how hard it is to believe in something, take a leap of faith and create something. That piece of work may not resonate with me because of my experience levels, how I go about stuff, the subject matter at hand. And then when I look at their backgrounds, I just make a decision that, hey, looks like a lot of other people can use that product. It doesn't mean the product's not good because I don't necessarily want to look at it. It just means that I'm at a point in my career where I know what I know. I know what I don't know. I know what I need to know. I know what I want to know. But more importantly, I'm at the part where I know what I don't care to know because there's so much out there that I'm not changing my mind on stuff. I've been doing this too long. And like you said, allegedly you want to call me great because I've been around great things. So I know what great looks like. So you're not going to flip the switch on somebody who's got 35 plus years in it and has had sustainable success because of the things that he's developed with his staff and the things that he's seen at the different levels he's been at. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate because I've been at every level you could almost ask for in sports fitness. I've been at the college level, the high school level, the pro level, and I've coached athletics in the private sector. Not many can say that. And that's why there's a lot of times you'll see private sector versus team sport coaches getting in battles on social media because the private coach wants to tell the team coach, oh, if I was in this setting, I would do it this way. No, you wouldn't because you don't know the rules of what we have to go by. And what you find out is, and I've seen this, a buddy of mine coached in the NFL was private sector the, his whole life. And I told him, look, bro, your three-hour warm-ups, you got 20 minutes now. Good luck. Now you're going to find out how good a coach you are. So there's a lot of things that go into term. What is great defined? 
to me, and I heard this from what I would consider the greatest United States hammer throw coach ever, Judd Logan, the late Judd Logan, who was a four-time Olympian in the hammer. He is the one who defined great coaches are defined by great players, great athletes. There's a lot of very good coaches, but the great ones generally are surrounded by great athletes. In his case, he was smart enough that he was able to recruit his talent. So he, he went out and got him some talent. But he also created a program that at a lower division school, every big-time thrower wanted to throw for him because of what they knew he could get them to be. So those are things you have to look at. It's not how many All-Americans you coached. It's how many All-Americans did you develop. That's the def definition of how finding how good a coach is. It's how well he does with the non-five stars. The five stars take care of themselves. They're very easy to coach. The easiest job I ever had to coach technically was in the NFL because of how athletic these guys are. They pick things up very, very quickly. I mean, two or three sets, man, they're doing it exactly the way you want. And then you want to know why they're in the NFL and everybody else watches. So I think that could be spoken about across the board. And then there are some times, again, you see it a lot. Of, and again, I'm not trying to hear to bash people, but then there's the, the athletes that are so talented, they could even outclass bad physical fitness training and strength training. And you see that a lot of times in social media with some of what these NBA guys put on that they think is... Now, I'm not saying they're not working hard, but some of the stuff they're doing, man, that, like, really? This guy's making $50 million a year and is one of the top 10 players in the world, and that's how he's training? Must be nice. So, again, man, I could ramble all day about that, but I would just say that we've just got to be quite aware that not every coach can be great, right? Like, everybody's great. Everybody's the GOAT. Oh, he's a legend. He's a legacy. How can a guy be a legend if he's only coached for five years? Like, that makes no sense to me. Legends and legacies, just on their terms, are duration is how long can you suck it up and do something before you can even be considered that. So, again, I think you can see, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but I'm trying to let people just understand. Just think about stuff before you label something. And it's just like, when you're climbing the ladder, when you're getting into careers that winning and losing matters, a lot of times you're just chasing success. Like that's how most people recognize you. Like, again, we talk about good for great, right? A lot of the coaches that are designated as great, if you really, really look at it, why are they being determined great? Because they've got numerous championships. Some of the best coaching I've ever seen that if you want to call that great coaching, are from teams that don't win a game because their talent from an athletic standpoint and a sports-specific standpoint may not be as great as the teams they're playing against, but the improvement levels of the athlete and the improvement levels of so-called KBIs jump off the table. It's just the fact that, hey, man, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit, and that's sometimes the truth. Joe, I love your perspective that a great coach is determined by the components of an ecosystem, the athletes they have, the system that they're in. I'm curious from being the strength and conditioning coach for so many football teams, what do you do in the gym that helps with the overall team building and atmosphere that brings out the best in athletes? Yeah, I think, but again, I think that goes back to what type of philosophy you believe. And that's why I say there's some coaches that are 
legitimate culture coaches. And programming is not, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but they're just finding ways and they're more studying leadership capabilities and creating scenarios to show effort. People want to say, you know, oh, we're going to get them tougher in the weight room. That's a debate. I was very fortunate that my personality, my programming, the things we created within the room and on the field for certain events was competitive enough and challenging enough that it watched leadership develop on its own. I think that a lot of people define leadership a lot of ways. In my world as a leader, you're not judged by how many followers you have, you're judged by how many leaders you develop. And I think it's the same thing when you have 100 athletes or even, you know, I started out in Olympic sports, so I've coached, you know, 30 or 40 overall sports or touched that many sports in my career. Hands-on, I think I've worked with close to 16 different sports where I actually coached that team. So those situations there, a lot of it is a combination, like you said, it's you have to learn what the values are of the sport coach. You have to learn what the type of athletes are they're recruiting. And that's why I tell people in strength and conditioning, when you're early in your career, you should try to touch as many different teams and athletes as you can, because each sport, regardless of what level, has different personality traits. Sprinters' personalities are different than throwers. Women's basketball players are different personalities than women volleyball players, but yet their skill set has some a lot of similarities from a strength and power standpoint. So there's a whole complexity of that. And then it's the question is, do you have some type of skill to mold all this up into a nice sphere where everything intertwines within that globe? And it's a hard thing to master because there are times when you got to put the hammer down. I mean, that's kind of not talked about anymore. You know, everybody's like, train smarter, not harder. And my comeback to that is, well, why can't we train smart hard? Because there is a difference. There's stupid hard and smart hard. And when I was in college, especially in the 90s, I helped create some of the stupid hard stuff we were doing. But again, that's kind of like you were saying. Those were the challenges to see who was going to rise to the occasion and lead the group under adverse situations and then put just a small group of freshmen into a pot to see who the future leaders are of this group, like who are going to be the guys who lead this team two, three, four years down the road. And then when you integrate junior in this day and age, that what you're asking is super hard at the college level because the transfer portal has made it an independent free agency. So the whole developmental structure of a college four or five year career could now be reduced to one, you know, a kid going to three different schools within that five-year career. So the culture building and the team building and the bonding is almost like the NFL, where you better have a highly motivated, self-educated, self-influenced individuals who are driven by personal success, significance, and excellence, because they're not going to be with you long enough to do what you're usually used to doing. Like, the old, you know, used to hear them, you know, break them down to build them back up. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the right terms to use anymore, be a breaker or a builder. Like it was always, all right, let's beat these kids down and build them back up. Well, now 
the society's changed, athletes have changed, and I'm not saying they're soft. The rules have changed, the complexities have changed, so the athletes have adapted to what is asked of them. So you can't ever say, this kid's soft, they used to do it this way. That kid doesn't know what we used to do. He knows what he knows because of the rules that are in front of him. So it's become a very individualized situation because of how these kids are being developed at lower levels and the amount of influence outside people have overrating quite a few athletes on the come up. So there's a lot of different things. And, you know, you brought it up before we went record about the psychological aspects of how are you playing the game? It's like Jedi mind tricks. How do you build up these resolutions to get these guys to understand that one, you are here to see them succeed. That's one thing you learn in the NFL, the difference between a strength coach in the college and the pros. And again, it's changed. The easiest generalization is in the college, you still got a little bad cop. Like you're the guy who's got to drop the hammer. You're the guy who's got to make them work. You're the guy who handles sometimes the discipline of the team. In the NFL, you're really a service. Like you are managing high-level athletes and trying to work with them pretty much hand-in-hand to develop a resiliency and robustness plan that gets them the years they want and their goal years they want as a professional athlete. So the pro stuff as far as building culture and team. A lot of that's separated because of the high motivation to win and they understand a resiliency and they understand the concept of team because of what they learned in college. And remember, every level you phase people out. So by the time you get to the professional levels, everybody that's not good enough for whatever reasons washed out. So you got the cream of the crop. So those guys are there for a reason. They understand why they're there. Obviously, some guys take greater leadership roles than others, but the truth of the matter is if you really dissected almost every guy that's in the NFL or or every guy who's in the NBA and you look at where they came from, they were probably the leaders of where they came from. And then the hierarchy changes when they get to the next level because then the superior leader kind of jumps to the forefront. So it's really a concept matter, hard to just give you specific bullet points because I think each individual team when you walk into those situations for the first time there's got to be a lot of observation and valuation especially if you're a coach coming into a program with an already established culture and staff it's a lot different if you come in right after a coaching change if you come in a new then everything's new the standards and the building blocks are here laid out before you get there. And then it's your job to help implement that into the program. If you are a coach that comes in in say year two or three of a rebuild or a new coaching change, you have to do the service of stepping back and not instituting what you think's the culture and grasping what that culture is so that you're on the same speaking terms of the individuals who've been there before you, because the last thing you want to do is to corrupt what's trying to be built. Because now the athlete starts second guessing, man, this guy's coming in here and I like what he said better than what they've been saying. So then all of a sudden now you've created chaos and you're doing the exact opposite of what you're hoping to build. And that's a team where everybody understands what the values, everybody understands the core concepts of what that 
alleged culture is. And then there's the buy-in. And usually you buy in or you buy out. And the great thing nowadays, or whether you think it's great or not, is it's easy for those who buy out for the coach to ship them out, as you saw at Colorado with Coach Prime. And I'm not condoning or, or praising what he did. He utilized what's available to him, and this is the way he wanted to establish his culture. So other people may agree with it. Other people may disagree with it. I just evaluate it and just say this is just another way that this day and age's rules and concepts has allowed a, a new coach to build a program from scratch. Coach, that was just a point that with Colorado there just blew my other question out of the water. But what I'm really curious about is I look at it from a media perspective and Deion Sanders just came into that program and exploded across the internet. I was looking at tickets to a Stanford game, and usually they're about 50, 60 bucks. To go to a Colorado Stanford game is like 700 bucks for like nosebleed seats. And I was like, what? That's crazy. And we mentioned earlier about the transfer portal. What's your thoughts on the whole Colorado situation with the media? And how do you think that impacts the transfer portal? And what's your overall thoughts on their program and what's going on? Well, I mean, like anything else, let's just be honest with you. Let's look at it from Colorado's standpoint. They were coming off a season, they were 1-11, right? I believe, yeah, 12 games, 1-11. They mm-hmm. needed something to spark interest, not only in the national concept of recruiting, but in their own backyard with their boosters. I mean, you got to, if you remember correctly, and I don't want to speak with indefinites, but Colorado wasn't financially able to do what they did when they hired Deion Sanders. They did not have all the money they committed to his five-year contract. That's how much they were betting on him to come in and revive the community, the boosters, which entails means donors giving money to the school. And now, like you said, he came in with such a buzz and such very unique ways of introducing himself and how he was going to rebuild this program. And because he understands a little bit about branding, obviously more than others and flash, he used that to his advantage. I don't see him using now in the end, he's all going to be evaluated on how many games he wins and loses. And I don't necessarily think it's much about this year. I mean, if he, I know they expect anybody who coaches expects to be more than what they're going to be. That's just the way it is. But for me, looking on the outside in, having coached in the Pac-12 when it was the Pac-10, I would say that if he, and that was a tough loss to Stanford. That Stanford loss hurt what I thought his goal should be is to just get that team to a bowl game. Get six wins, get to a bowl game, pull off something to win that bowl game. Now you go into the next year with high momentum. Everybody wants to be the champion of their conference. In this day and age, the ultimate goal is to win a national championship or get to the playoffs. But you have to look at the small wins. One of the things that I always said was, let's get to a bowl game. That should be one of your immediate goals. Get a winning record, get to a bowl game. Then the rest is bonus. Win the conference, go to a BCS at the time, or get to the college playoffs. Be as ranked as high as you can. But if the best you can be is go to, uh, let's just say, what's the bowl? I don't even know there's so many bowls. Let's just say you're fortunate enough and you're going to go to the Myrtle Beach Bowl, right? 
Well, the ultimate goal for that team now becomes to be Myrtle Beach Bowl champions because now you're going into the next offseason, in some respects, a champion. It might not be the championship you want it to be, but it's a lot better rolling into the next year with a championship bowl ring in hand instead of attending the bowl game and and coming out non-victorious, if you understand what I'm saying. So we always used to love getting to a bowl game and winning because then we could say, we ended this year Sun Bowl champs. We ended this year Insight Bowl champs. We ended this year Vegas Bowl champs. My last year at Arizona State, we won the Pac-10. We co-championed with USC. We left as the Pac-10 co-champs, but we got our butts beat in the in the Holiday Bowl. So you end on a sour note. You always want to try to end on a positive note. So whatever that last game of the year is, you'd like it to be a win. And generally, if you've won enough, that's going to be a bowl game. So your goal should be, let, what can I be the best of? I can be the Sun Bowl champs. Okay, then let's go train to be the Sun Bowl champs. Then as we roll into the next year, you can use that to motivate to be better, if that makes sense. So with Dion and Colorado, again, what's happening there is no different than when Pete Carroll showed up at USC in the early 2000s. It's no different what you see at any school across the country when it comes to looking at tickets on StubHub. You're not getting Alabama tickets cheap. You're not getting Georgia tickets cheap. Every year they win, I'm sure season tickets go up (laughs) because the demand gets higher. You know, it's just like in the NFL, a lot of these owners got smart. You want season tickets, you got to buy permanent seat licenses. So now you got to get the permanent seat license just to get a season ticket. It's one of those. So from my standpoint, I don't mind it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. I like what he did because it sparked a different way. He broke the norm of what traditionalists, if you notice the most of the people that don't like it are traditionalists. And again, we can't continue to look at the past. The past is what it is. And there was great things that happened in the past, but the rules and the regulations of what happens in major college football today as well as the societal changes and how we look at things differently on how we handle individuals has changed to a point where you have to utilize those to your advantage or people that are recruiting against you will use that to your disadvantage. Hey, you don't want to go there. They still think they're in, in the 2000s. They don't have an NIL. They don't have a collective. They don't use the transfer portal. And that 10-win team now wins five, and nobody wants to go there. So I think that the more interest he sparks, the more kids that he's going to get on campus that never would have thought about Colorado. Will he get them all? Of course not. But just like he got Travis Hunter to go to Jacksonville State, he only needs a few of those, and more and more of them come. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And I love your perspective on that. And me being a media guy myself, I grew up in the era where you see a five-star football recruit completely destroy a DB and it's all over the internet. It's everywhere. You see the highlights. Millions of people have seen it. I'm really curious, growing up with a camera around these insane recruits where you know, in the past they did a highlight, they broke a DB and you see maybe 30, 40 people around. And maybe it's just a talk of the town. Like everybody knows, oh, that guy's a beast. Now the whole world knows he's a beast. It's everywhere. And I'm just really curious, what's your thoughts on media at the player standpoint? We talked about it for Colorado. It's just completely elevating the team, like you said, and 
it helps so much with their boosters. But I'm curious, at a player perspective, what's your thoughts on media and the players? Well, everybody's got a highlight tape. I can put together 10 plays of when I played college football, you, th- you would think I should be in the NFL. It's what happened the other 10,000 plays that I played. So I think we live in a highlight real world. So I think too many of these athletes are being judged on a highlight and not on their body of work, which helps them from a standpoint of stars and things like that. But what it hurts them is now everybody's built them up to a level they really might not be, if, if that makes sense. Like if mm-hmm. I got a 10-play highlight tape, but I played 10,000 plays, and that 10-play highlight tape is the only 10 plays I was ever good at, and now you're telling everybody, oh, House is a five-star athlete, got 35 offers, and then goes and never plays a down because he wasn't really that good. But, and again, we'll just say because you run a recruiting website, all you're looking at is 10-play highlight tapes. So in some ways, you've ruined that guy's opportunity because maybe he should have been at a lower level where he could have excelled. So you got to watch out for the overhype. And the problem with the overhype is a lot of times these athletes' entourage aren't there to check them. Like, you got to have somebody who can check you. Everybody needs that. Whether it's a brother, a mother, a father, a wife, a husband, a sister, whatever. Someone's got to be the person that goes, yeah, that ain't that ain't right. Like, that's just not the way it goes down. So, you know, and again, we live in an era where it is what it is. But you have to be aware of that when you're evaluating talent. And I think as you've seen now, why do you think these, you know, there's more people that are in recruiting offices than were actually on entire coaching staffs when I played. So these are the people you're relying on to determine who's going to play for you, which hopefully they got a football background, but a lot of them don't. They're watching tape, don't know what to watch. You know, I'm a strength and conditioning coach by trade, but I played O-line and D-line. I can evaluate offense and defense at a certain level. I know what I'm looking for in an offensive defensive line athletically to a point where I can tell you regardless of their technique if they have the athletic capabilities to make it to the next level. But to judge technical aspects, I'd have to sit down with their coach and know their techniques and what they're asking for. I've seen too many scouts come in my office and try to downgrade athletes I coach because of technique. And I said, you can't downgrade them on that technique because that's what the coach is asking them to do. If you don't agree with it, that's okay. But for you to grade him down because you don't like his technique, that's not fair to the athlete when he is doing what you want him to do. You want him to be coachable. He's doing what the coach says. Hey, I might not agree with it either, but he's doing what his coach says. You can't grade him down. So those are things you got to watch out for. Again, you have to accept where we're at in this generation. You've got to accept the fact that we live in a highlight reel. Can I get on ESPN top 10? Can I get how many retweets on Twitter? How many likes can I get on my Instagram story, uh, threads, whatever it is out there. But you have to be aware as the evaluator, I need to see a full game. Like I need to see game tape. Like I see a lot of times, I see people give me a, you know, hey, can you watch this tape of my kid? It's a highlight tape. Well, they don't even know how to do a highlight tape right. Like I'll watch five plays and go, this guy can't play. I said, if this, 
The first five plays, I need – if you want me to watch the rest of your film, you better have a really good first minute of highlights. I can know in five minutes whether I need to watch more tape. So I'll have guys tell me, and they're like, I said, yeah, he can't play. And then if they're really good friends of mine, I'll watch the whole thing. And I said, look, man, you're lucky I like you because I should have shut this thing off in a minute. But you got this whole highlight tape wrong. The best plays are three minutes in. No coach is getting to three minutes in. So you got people building highlight tapes that don't even know. When I, when I built my son's highlight tape, every friggin' game, we'd pull out his best plays, and then I'd have to go through the highlight tape every week of repositioning plays. <laughs> every week, changing plays. Five games in, three games later, which was the number one play, is now number eight. Hell, a coach might even not get to that play anymore. It's a game. You know that. It's a game. It's just like, how many times do you see really, and again, I'll do even myself a lot of times. How many times do you see anybody really put a fail up when they're in the weight room? Unless it's somebody who got caught on a security camera and they're making a joke of them. But how many times do you see high-level people put a miss? right? So why would you put a bad play up front? And again, hey man, a five yard out isn't the number one play I should see for a wide out. I want to see a go route. Dude lays one over the top. You caught it with your hands and then you outran two DBs into the end zone. If that's play five, you better hope I get to five if the first four suck. Because I got no time as a recruiting coordinator. I've got 10,000 kids that think they can play at my hotshot school. Now, I will tell you, though, the transfer portal will hurt high-level high school athletes because most college coaches don't have the time to develop kids anymore because they're getting fired too fast. So what would you rather do? And this is the Dion mentality is, would I rather get a transfer from a 1A school, even if it's a school that may not like, a, and again, I don't like the way they rank things, but you got your power fives and your group of fives, right? So I got a starting offensive lineman from a group of five team that wants to come to my power five school to compete for a starting job. Am I giving that guy a scholarship or a six foot six, 240 pound high school senior who I have to develop and gain 50 pounds who might not develop and gain 50 pounds? Who are you giving the scholarship to? Right. When you know you're going to get fired in three years if you don't win. You see what I'm saying? So. That kid who's 6'6", 240, may wind up being better than the guy you signed from the group of five, but we'll never know because now that kid's playing at a lower level than he should be. And then that hurts him because if he dominates that level, all the scouts are going to ask, how good is he if he would have played in the power five? So it's going to change even the, how professionals look at, and more so with football. Basketball, again, because the way the game is played, the athleticism, the youth of the sport. I mean, the fact that they can leave college in one year, that's the transfer portal at its finest. Play one year and bounce to the league. Hey, as soon as I turn 19, I'm going to the NBA. So again, you got all these kids registering for school where I'm a proponent of with sports where you maturation is a little bit different. But I, I've always was a fan of basketball being able to go to the pros right out of high school if they were good enough. And nowadays, with the way they have the G League set up and some of these like prep schools that are, are developing teams more like that, basketball has a lot of different options than football. Football's tough, man. Like 
you need to get bigger, faster, stronger for the most part in a lot of positions to play this game, especially up front. I mean, I don't know in my whole life from 19 when I started playing. Let's say from my high school career to now, I don't know if I ever saw a high school lineman who was legitimately could come out and play right away out of high school. I mean, I just didn't, I haven't seen it yet. But the way some of these guys are getting bigger and faster and more talented, could it occur down in the next 25 years? Quite possibly. But, you know, most of the other athletes, you see a lot more freshmen play right away because the skills are there and they can mature physically. But the physicalness of the game is so different than football, where that's the key. It's the physicality and the contact and the violence versus some of these other sports. There's a little bit more athleticism and finesse. And the contact is there, but not at the violence and the competitiveness of a sport like football. It's wild how the world is so instant gratification and instant result driven that it's it's going to be interesting to see how it shapes the league in years to come with the new structure. Well, it's like anything else, man. The good products, they stick to their the key. What's the key elements of that? And then they devise. I mean, like, I think Adam Silver's done a very good job with the NBA, more so than Goodell with the NFL. There's just certain things that it's the way it is, man. Like, you know, with, you know, and again, I'm not promoting or condoning anything, but like with the marijuana issues, if you know 90% of your population is utilizing marijuana for whatever reasons, and you still consider it a banned substance when I don't know the percentages across the United States that now has made it legal both recreationally and or medically, but you have to reevaluate that. I mean, some of this stuff's archaic. It's just like coaching styles. It's hard to jump in a guy's face this day and age, and it's not because they can't take it. It's because it's frowned upon in society, and you got to be aware of that because, yeah, it may be acceptable, but if the wrong person sees it and wants to put, like you said, and wants to use social media to gain their likes and their brand, they can make a, a general just shouting match on the sidelines into a, a thing that could cost you your, your job or your position. Joe, I'm going to change speeds for a second and pull you back to the world of strength and conditioning because that's where I really geek out. I was super impressed by looking at your block zero concept and at the, the tier system strength training. And I, I love the attention to injury prevention and really pulling athletes back to where they can move well before building them up. I'm curious, I'm sure it's different at every single level, both with players and whatever program you're joining, but how do you sell the players in the program on the concept of, of slowing down to get things right before building back up? Do you get pushback there and is it more pushback from the program or from the players? That's a great question. I will say this, when you have a plan and you give it its substance and you give it its direction and you explain it properly, we had very little pushback. And again, obviously at the high school level, you know, you got an eighth grader, they're afraid of the weight room anyway, for you to just tell them, hey, we're going to go in the gym and we're not going to touch a weight for six months. They'll probably be like, oh, that's good because I don't want to go in there with a senior. With a college guy, you just talk about, you know, corrective. I mean, back then when I first, it was called correctives. Remember prehab, all the nomenclature terms. But, you know, like I, I truly believe if you build a program correctly, you've built all that in. I don't like mission statements as far as what they become. I think you should have a mission. I think you should have a vision. But if you really look at what a lot of companies and a lot of organizations do, their mission statement has become a mission paragraph. And nobody can memorize a paragraph. 
no matter how hard you try. It's hard enough to memorize a statement, let alone believe in it. I got into meditation and mantras and stuff like that. So I, I believe in developing mantras that are easily rememberable and easily replicable. So for me, I've tried to build things in terms of three, try to use the same starting letter in the alphabet. So my mission mantra for development of athletes is prepare, protect, and produce. And the preparation is the foundation of everything. And that's a lot of the educational process. And that's very in-depth. That, that goes all the way to educating coaches, athletes, parents, teachers, uh, sports meds. It's educating anybody who is involved in the athlete within your staff and exponentially outside your staff. That can go on for days, but that's your foundation. And then from there, what you've going into there, you build into the level of protection. Because that, you know, everybody used to talk about, oh, our number one goal is to reduce injuries, right? That's what strength and conditioning started, right? Reduce injuries, reduce injuries. Well, but yet a lot of times when I came up, there was a lot of hypocrisy going on because we would talk about, oh, our number one goal is to reduce injuries. And then we'd get an athlete, not even know his name and test him in three lists because we needed the numbers. We needed to know what their maxes are, let alone did we know if they even knew what a squat was, let alone know what proper squat depth is. So. The protection part is building a plan and building a progression or a layering process of movements to consistently be able to show improvement. Because a lot of times when kids started out in training, everybody got the same program. And then what would happen was you'd start hearing coaches say, well, after three years, they probably are who they are. Well, that's because they've adapted to the program. There's no more ability to a stimulus to improve. That's where, again, I knew this beforehand, but that's where Louis Simmons talks about with the rotation of exercises, you never give your body a chance, you know, what's the best exercise to do, the one you're not doing, right? Because again, it's a continuation of stimulation. So when you explain these things and you're building out a plan, you have to remember this. I think this is what I learned a lot more. I knew this, but it really resonated training Brian. When you live in a land of sports, the great thing about being a strength and conditioning coach is Yes, you want to get them stronger. Yes, you want to get them faster. Yes, you want to get them leaner. Yes, you want to do this. Yes, you want them to jump high. Yeah, you don't want to get them hurt. But the best part about it is, in some ways, there's no pressure really on you when it comes to certain things because the true evaluation happens on game day. And the thing is, the game day does not apply to the weight room because the weight room is not their practice field. So there is a little bit what I call... There's pressure to be improved, but the pressure of, hey, if this guy doesn't bench 400, we're going to lose the game. That's not there. But if Brian Shaw doesn't hit a 400-pound log, he loses three points. That's pressure in the weight room. So you got to look at it from a practice field versus non-practice field scenario and understand it's out there on YouTube where Brian's training for an MMA fight. And I'm I'm working with him and consulting with him on his strength and conditioning programs. And like I had to tell him, I said, yo, bro, the way we made the practice field no more. You got to go back to when you were a basketball player. So the programming is a lot different. The time in the weight room is a lot different because he's he's got six other training sessions a week on top of the two and a half that we were doing three strength training sessions. Now we're doing two and a half because he's got a lot of work to do. And the truth is, He's big and strong enough not to need strength and conditioning to a point, but you got to keep that thing rolling. Because again, 
we're building out things that protect him. Some of the ways we changed how he does a dumbbell bench versus how he would have done it if he was training for a competitive bench press or how he's doing his upper body work more independent limb versus barbell or log or straight bar or, or fixed barbell or fixed apparatus work, lower body work. Most of the stuff he's done is sagittal plane. Now he's doing frontal and transverse plane work. So when you build this program out, you're building out abilities that help build a resilient and robust athlete. So you don't necessarily need to do prehab work if you build things out into a program. Ancillary isolation, secondary assistant work are more critical than we ever imagined because those are the things that are important to the protection plan. And that's why you get into this prehab, rehab, corrective stuff because a lot of performance coaches in athletics stopped scripting single joint movements because it wasn't athletic, right? Because athletics is multiple plane, multiple joint movement. But the truth comes to the little ancillary work that needs to be the real protection. What types of movements are usually used in physical therapy to strengthen muscles after surgery? Single joint isolative exercises. And again, this is full circle movements. Been there, done it, made the mistakes, corrected the mistake. If we're going to do them after they're hurt, why not do them before they're hurt? Maybe they won't get hurt. I'm not saying they're not going to get hurt, but I think I can reduce the percentages. If, if this rotator cuff plan is the key to this kid coming back from rotator cuff surgery, what if I instituted that plan before he tore his rotator cuff? Maybe he won't tear it. So that's the protection part, right? And then the production part is adding those big lifts, the alleged lifts that people think are important to athleticism, right? Some variation of a squat, some variation of a total body pull, horizontal and vertical upper body push pulls, posterior chain development, head and neck support. Everybody talks about posterior chain development. They generally just go right to the lower body, but posterior chain is also the the posterior shoulder capsule. All these things formulate into a proper program. You don't really need to worry about prehab or correctives. And again, it's all terminology. If you lump it into prehab and correctives, the athlete thinks something's wrong with them. If you lump it into a program and you just call it a different name that has nothing to do with maybe I'm going to get hurt, they look at it totally different. So again, it's Jedi mind tricks, and that's programming. We have to look at it from a standpoint of we live in a country where we want it now and don't understand there's certain things you can't get now without work. Again, you can get there different means, but I know more people who bench 400 that have bad shoulders because they can't do pull-ups and push-ups correctly because they jumped right into a bench press. My thing is I'd rather you never bench 400 but be able to do pull-ups and push-ups correctly and never get hurt. I love that perspective, Joe. And I think it is such a service that you provide when it comes to psychologically mixing it into the core program so that it doesn't get devalued by the athlete. That's well, just like body weight. I mean, here's the thing, and this is why I think body weight and relative work can never not be important. How come the three of the hardest exercises for anyone to do is a chin-up, a Nordic curl, and a pistol squat, right? But yet, you got guys who can squat 600, bench 600, deadlift 1,000, and can't do any of the three. And again, most of those have a different skill set to do something else. But 
I look at it like, and I just did this explanation. If I got a kid who's going to start at running back as a freshman, why does it matter how I lift him or train him? He's starting anyway. So what does it matter? Hey, we need to get him squatting. Why? Well, he's going to be our starting running back. You just got him from middle school. You think he squatted in middle school? Like, calm down. He's going to squat. It might not be the type of squat you want, but he's going to squat. And when he's ready to squat, he's going to squat so damn good that he's probably going to have a better transfer to whatever leg strength he gets from squatting than if I throw him in there right now and he doesn't know what to do. So I look at it like we have to look at what we are. Remember, the problem is we have so many good young athletes that are just tremendously excelled at their sport-specific capabilities, but yet have really remedial skills in ancillary general physical capabilities. Like you've got guys who can go out on a football field, but they can't skip or they don't even know what a gallop means. Or some of them can't backpedal or run backwards, can't crawl, but yet they can excel in their sport. So we overlook all that stuff and then want to know why when things start to catch up and the talent around them starts to catch up, they break down because they weren't generally prepared where these are things, again, whether you want to, I'm not going to get into politics, but why overseas, yeah, they may do some things that you read like, wow, man, these people are just a psychopath, but they'll, they'll bring all their athletes or all their alleged youth in and take them through a battery of general physical fitness traits and then classify them in what sport they're going to be in. And then they're off to the races, right? But they're trying to figure out where this athlete fits, where we say our kid's going to be a baseball player and we're going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in position coaches, hitting coaches, pitching coaches, and not do any performance work and want to know why they've got issues, uh, ortho issues or Tommy John surgeries because we've overdeveloped certain parts of their body. Again, I don't know the guy, never met him, studied him a little bit, didn't go super in depth. But you can't tell me that a lot of Tiger Woods' physical ailments that occurred later in his career couldn't have been corrected if he would have trained some of those motions in the opposite direction to rebuild his body. And again, he started hitting a golf ball, a highly skilled trait with a lot of torque and rotation in one movement pattern from what, two, three, four years old to 44. I want to know why he's got back and knee issues. What if during that time when he got into physical fitness, and again, I don't know this, but did they work on rotating the other way or even trying to replicate a golf swing from a lefty to a righty or a righty to a lefty just to try to even up the balance compensations that were happening. And again, I know this is general speaking, but think about that. The one thing about tennis is, even though there's a forehand and a backhand, there's a lot of multiplanar work going in there. So you don't necessarily see the same type of injuries with tennis players, but how many golfers got back issues? You think there's not some relativity to the fact that they never go in the opposite direction? Joe, you've been at the top of the strength and conditioning world for a long enough time to see fads come and go and 
the status quo get challenged. And something I've been a witness to at afar for the last handful of years is academia is being challenged in the strength and conditioning world when it comes to training the knee over the toe position. I know that this is something that used to be avoided in the world of strength and conditioning because that's where more injuries occur. That's where the knee's at its weakest. And it seems that people are now taking the approach to train that more in the strength and conditioning realm so that when it is replicated on the field, the athletes are more durable. I'm curious to know, number one, what is your take on training the knee over toe position? And number two, have you had any run-ins with academia when it came to your training philosophy being against the grain? I've had blessings from academia because I've proven them right. And I've also proven research wrong. But as far as the knees over the toes fat and some of these you know, guys who promote like the 90 degrees and things like that, it's always somewhere in between. Like I don't get caught up in the fads. Like I taught a way to squat. I based it on a lot of different things. I'm a power lifter. So obviously I'm going to be more uh, conducive to a hip type of dominant squat. But even then I knew because powerlifting is a sport. If you look at most very good powerlifters, regardless of body weight, they all have the same height and structure. They're all short and depending on how much they weigh. But so limb length has a lot to do with things. So we taught a specific way on all our techniques, but the individuality of who you are was based off your levers. So if I taught the specific squat position and some guys could squat back and had a vertical shin and some guys squatted the same mechanical way, but because of their limbs, their knee came forward, as long as the knee tracks in line, I think my worries are more concave knee than knee over toe. Because again, if I'm going to train a lunge, I'm going to train a lunge with either a vertical shin or a, a forward knee drive, depending on how I want the athlete to apply force into the front foot. So I never, you know, like ask to grass squats, right? What's the proper squat depth? This proper squat depth is what that athlete is capable of squatting with what we would call a technical soundness or what I like to call a competent technique. So if I am a little less mobile, but my squat technique is impeccable and I can go to hamstring parallel, well, again, can I do things in a mobility class? Can I do things in certain different areas of my development that maybe help improve my range of motion, hip, ankle, whatever that limitation may be to squat deeper? Quite possibly. And then I have the kid who just naturally can squat full ass to grass. I'm not going to stop them from doing that because I've set a limit. Like I have what I consider my quality squat depth for athletics. If someone goes lower than that, I'm not going to stop them. If they're capable of doing that, I'm judging their norms off themselves. It's just like I teach a power catch in the clean for the general masses. I just believe if I teach a power catch, it forces the athlete to get higher in extension instead of trying to mimic an Olympic lifter who really understands how to get extended but pull themselves under the bar. Most athletes do not know how to do that. They're already pulling themselves under the bar before they get to extension. So for me, that's why I, I like high pulls as a standalone. A lot of Olympic athletes and coaches do not script high pulls because they'll tell you when the elbow bends, the power ends. But yet, watch enough people. The elbow's always bending. It's just how much it's bending. So for me, though, if I get the athletes in an up-tall position, I get them in what I call a scarecrow position where the upper arm is parallel to the ground and I can get them fully extended, 
That's my ultimate goal in the total body lift is getting full extension. So that way I know they have to catch it higher. So if they pull it higher, they can catch it higher. So I, I overemphasize the pull. And that's why I teach bottom up instead of top down because top down, you got to learn how to catch because it's a sport. So I understand how important the catch is first. But I teach top down and I teach the deadlift first because I need to teach force production into the ground because that's what our guys do. They run, they sprint, they change direction. They got to know how to apply force into the ground. And they're also going to learn from landing and jumping how to yield and absorb force. But I need them to learn how to apply force into the ground correctly because a lot of times they're going to be doing that coming out of their stance, if that makes sense. So from that standpoint, it's, it's a whole conduciveness of what you're trying to accomplish. And again, so with my son, when he was in ninth grade, the first time he cleaned 80 kilograms, he missed, I don't like misses. Olympic lift's a little different because it's so technical. You can tweak one centimeter and make a good lift and then go up another 30 kilograms. But he was missing, missing. And I mean, he was pulling that bar chin high. And I finally said, look, man, this is it. I'm tired of you missing and I'm tired of watching it. You either hit it or you don't. And he pulled the bar and stuck it in a full front squat catch. I mean, back, boom, elbows ripped. And his buddy's with him. I'm like, his buddy's like, and he's even in the hole, like, like he sat down there for like that split second, like, what just happened? And he was a great front squatter. I mean, he front squatted 385 at 200 pounds in high school. So he squats it up and we're just going psycho. And that's when I made the realization that regardless of what you may set as a standard for your programming, don't let an athlete not be an athlete, if that makes sense. And if an athlete's healthy and has no issues, then wherever that knee goes, I'm not going to get too carried away with it. If the athlete comes to me and says, I want to get into competitive powerlifting, well, then he's going to get in, you know, well, this day is a lot more raw, but when I started, there was still geared. You get into gear, you can sit back. Like you can get a perpendicular shin real quick, even more so in a negative angle. So it's one of those situations where, you got to let the athlete be the athlete. Some athletes are going to naturally be able to get knee over toe and not have any knee pain. Some athletes are going to go knee over toe and have knee pain. You got to adapt to the athlete. And again, the earlier you get an athlete, and again, I don't want them to be robots. I'm a huge believer in free play. I'd rather a kid go out and play in the yard and figure it out on his own than me teach him and be a robot. But if you get an athlete young enough, and you teach him good habits, like my son, he doesn't have any bad habits. He doesn't know anything else but what I taught him. And that's why I created Block Zero. So when my sons went to high school, no shitty coach could mess him up. Now the great thing is high school strength conditioning from 15 years ago when my kids were in school or 20, whatever it was, is catastrophically improved. The things that some of these high school strength coaches are doing is very impressive. And that's why like Oh, they go, it's only high school. Hey, man, the big time is where you're at. Make the big time where you are. I mean, that's just the way it is. And if the big time's your garage, then make the big time your garage. If the big time is you being a virtual coach, then do whatever you can to be a big time virtual coach. So I look at it from the standpoint of let the athlete be who they are, but as a coach, set parameters for your staff so that everybody's being coached the same thing. And then the individuality of the athlete takes over. I hope that answered your question. Absolutely, man. And it 
brings up another question I have for you. You mentioned your sons. I'm curious. I'm not a father, but I have tried coaching relatives in the past, and I know that's very different <laughs> than coaching non-relatives. What is it like when you meld the word, worlds of fatherhood and, and coaching? Well, I mean, you guys are probably too young, but have you ever heard the story of Todd Marinovich and his father? No. All right, go find that on YouTube and watch that. It's not a good story. His dad meant well, but it just backfired. And my oldest son said I kenovitched him. So you'll get the idea when you, when you go do your research. But I will tell you this. I never wanted to coach my own kids. And you think being a strength coach, you're not coaching them, but you're coaching. And with my oldest, I took it a little too far. So I would tell you this, whether you want to say it's a testimony or a life lesson, because I know a lot of guys, man, they just fall in love with it. And some kids, I'm not saying this is going to be everybody, but I want the parent to be aware of this. Your kid will have, I don't know how many coaches in his life but he's only going to have one mom or dad. So you want to make sure you understand that where your son or your daughter sees you as a dad at least some of the time and not a coach 100% of the time. You don't want your kid to tell you, I needed a dad once in a while, you coach me 100% of the time. That's not something that any parent wants to hear. Whether you had good intentions or not, it's not something necessarily you want to hear. So I learned a valuable lesson with my oldest and almost went the complete opposite with my youngest. And it's interesting how things turn out. Both of them were scholarship athletes. My oldest didn't finish school. He went into trades, but he did earn a scholarship in football. My youngest was a hard gainer. He went to school as a, a walk-on and earned a scholarship as a track and field thrower. So both my kids wind up going to school on scholarship. My oldest son was a freak talent. Like he could do things in the weight room that not many people can do. He, as an 18 year old senior getting ready for college, he did 50 consecutive Nordic curls with no assistance at the end of a workout. That was a speed workout and a squat workout. He could do a pistol squat with a racked barbell. Doesn't sound like a lot, but he did a 36 inch single leg long jump as a senior in high school. Like I said, he, he front squatted 385 at 205. He full cleaned, I think, 125 kilograms. We would do cool stuff. I worked when I was training him, get ready for college. One of the coolest complexes we did is I worked out my buddy, Ricky Pro, played 17 years in the NFL. He had a facility where I did my private workout when I was out of college coaching for a year before I went to the Panthers. And he had basketball goals that you could crank up and down, right, for little kids and stuff. And it was right outside where I trained the guys. So we would do a complex where we would do two cleans or two hang cleans into a med ball dunk on a goalpost. So you literally would be on the platform. You do two hang cleans, go out there with a 10-pound med ball and have to dunk it, a vertical jump dunk to an eight-foot rim. And then if you got it, we'd crank it up six inches and crank it up six inches. I think he got... I can't remember what his best was. I want to say maybe an eight-pound med ball at a nine-foot rim. But his training partner, who was a college athlete and was a played in a minor pros like Arena League, I think he got a 10 or 12 on a 10-foot. That's wild. So that's the cool stuff we were able to do when you're at the, when you're at the right facilities. My, my oldest son never really had fun in a weight room. Like most of us, our first experience in a weight room is benching curls. 
His was glued ham raises, Nordic curls, ISO chin-up holes, and climb a rope. I mean, so he never got to really enjoy training. It was always a chore or always, and again, that's what people have to remember, like we were talking about before, with strength training versus athletics. He never wanted to train. He had to train. Where I want to train. I love training. Like people always ask me, House, what's your hobbies? I'd lift weights. I said, oh, I thought you were a strength coach. I am. Well, what's your hobby? That's my hobby. I lift weights. And that's all I want to do. And that's all I care to do. And that's just the way life goes. And if you don't like it, then don't hang out with me. But, you know, I'm not going to do it. You know, I lift weights or I talk to people like you about lifting weights. So, hey, what'd you do today? Oh, lifted weights. What else you do? Talk to these two great kids about lifting weights. <laughs> I mean, you know, and what am I going to do after this? Work on a program for Brian because he needs to lift weights. So it's tough. And I'm conscious now because I'm a granddad. And my little man, my youngest, my grandson, he plays flag. And my oldest, my granddaughter, she's doing a little cross-country stuff. But when they were playing like soccer and stuff like that, I, I have to really be aware of, hey, man, don't get too carried away. You're the granddad now. Let, let dad and mom worry about all the other stuff. And you just make sure you tell them good job. So, yeah, it's, it's a tough deal. And I just think, like, for me... I learned a hard lesson and I'm willing to share that because I don't want somebody to feel like I felt when I was told that because you think you're doing it right and then a resentment comes across. And and even to this day, my wife and my son said, man, put that thing to rest. Like it's over, but I, it's hard. I mean, it's hard for me to put it to rest because was I some of the reasons why he left school, right? Like I look at, not that, Hey, man, the guy's killing life. Like, he's got a great job. He's got a great family. I got two grandkids. I mean, I can't be more proud of how he did it his way. Like, he'll tell you. Like, my wife would always say, well, how come you always got to do it the hard way? And he'd go, well, how come you think I see it the hard way? Right? Like, he just sees it his way. But, like, for me, being around sports my entire life and knowing the potential he had if he stayed, I always look at like the situations that he was in while he grew up. Did I help make the right decisions? And if I would have made different decisions personally or how we affected him with a couple of different family moves and uh, things that happened family-wise, would that have changed any different? I don't know that. And like I said, it's way beyond us now. I mean, he's 30 years old, but you know, it's always brought up about with the parenting and stuff like that. So you start to reflect and and you just, like I said, man, I learned a lot. My other kid, I didn't do hardly anything. And he now he's a strength coach. So I figured out, right? Yeah, it's interesting being a parent for sure. I like being a grandparent better because it's a, it's a lot less stressful and it's a lot more fun. And I don't have to worry about being the bad guy. So that's good. Thank you for sharing that, Joe. Yeah, no problem. Hey, Coach, I appreciate you sharing that. That really changed my perspective about changing family for sure. And Coach, I wanted to acknowledge the CrossFit audience that we have for our podcast. Yeah. And recently, Tyson Badgen, he's the Bears rookie quarterback. He just got a start. Yeah, just um, or something like that. He said he was going to be a CrossFitter if he didn't make the team or something. Right, exactly. I, and yeah, I, I don't even know. And I don't know why I just saw that. It just popped <laughs> up. I don't even know where I saw it. He, they said, well, "What would you be?" He goes, I would be all into CrossFit. I'd be shredded or something. Right? Didn't he say something? Yeah. Like that? That that was exactly it. Yeah. He was asked, like, what would you do <laughs> if you didn't get the start? And he was like, I would just CrossFit my life away. And I'm That's curious, right. have you seen That's cases like that? 
Uh, Have you no. seen like those cases? No. No. <laughs> Both, no, but, but there's a guy again. Like, okay, so it goes back to what we said, right? Different levels. Here's a Division II quarterback. His version of training is different than kid out of Power 5. He probably had to train hard to help improve his skill sets, where the Power 5 guy's skill sets coming in out of high school might have been better than his. He earned the right to be there. Some guys are gifted the right to do things. So I always said this. The best technical lifters I coached in the NFL came from Division 2 and 3 because they had to do it right because they had to be technically and movement efficient because overall athletically, they weren't as qualified as the more athletic kids at D1 who could make a mistake, right? Who didn't have to lift three times a week and could tell the coach he lifted, right? But he's still going to go get 10 tackles and five sacks a game because he's just skilled. So no, that doesn't surprise me that he would have a little bit more love for training than others because I saw that. Now, I never had anybody say I was going CrossFit because most of those guys, man, once they're done, they don't want they don't want to train hard anymore. They train hard enough to make a good living. And some of them stay physically fit, but to train at that level, come on, let's face it. Professional CrossFitters don't train CrossFit. They don't train CrossFit. They train for the decathlon of endurance strength power athletes. They're training individual skill sets because their goal is hey, at the end of the year, I need to qualify for this event and do, what is it, 12 events over four days or 16 events over four days and win me 300 grand and get my sponsorship money up and let everybody fall in love with me so I can work my brand and sell my t-shirts. So it's just like Strongman. Like Strongman and CrossFit, I've told this to several people, what they've done athletically and what they've done were what textbooks told us couldn't be done. Like you, you weren't supposed to be able to, you know, the fight or flight syndrome, right? There's a reason why we always stop short of something, right? Like right before our body tells us, whoa, those people have figured out how to go past that. Like, hey, you know, grandma lifted a car off the ground because she had to save her kid, but, you know, no one could deadlift 800 pounds. And then one person does it. Now everybody deadlifts 800 pounds. Oh, you weren't supposed to run a four minute mile. Roger Barrister breaks the four-minute mile. Oh, you can run a four-minute mile. Then what happens? Now, if you run a four-minute mile, you're slow. So it takes a special group of people. It takes a special individual to show us what the human species can accomplish and what CrossFit has done. And again, I have an interesting relationship with CrossFit because when CrossFit first came out, we all dogged it because it wasn't promoted correctly. The, the programming was kind of out there when it came to some of the sets and reps and volumes that we all learned for certain demographics of exercises. But when you're giving out t-shirts for Rabdo, there's an issue. Remember the old Krusty the Clown t-shirts they would give out and things like that? I think it's evolved, obviously, in a, lot, in a, in a good way. But now when you want, like, I'll be here the first one to tell you. When CrossFit came out, I was like, get this, get, this is ridiculous, right? But then now professional CrossFit, because it isn't CrossFit, I watch it live. Like, I'll be mesmerized watching those athletes at those body dimensions do the loads and the capabilities of what they do, not just in the one day, but in the four consecutive days. We weren't supposed to be able to do that. Strongmen weren't supposed to be able to do what they're doing. And so those two individual strength sports have proven a lot of what we were told 
shouldn't be able to be done. And that just tells you how adaptable the human body can be, one, when you have the proper genetics and the proper understanding of what's going on. Because again, not everybody goes to the CrossFit Games. Not everybody goes to World's Strongest Man. We're talking about a very, not everybody goes to the NFL. Not everybody goes to college. Not everybody goes to high school, right? Like at some point in time, the level of genetics and athleticism just phase people out. And it's not good, bad, or indifferent, man. It's just evolution and species, right? The strongest survive. Well, guess what? The healthiest survive, right? The smartest survive longer because they'll figure out ways to survive. I mean, I just spent two weeks over in Italy where I actually enjoyed myself. And you look at some of the things that were created before the industrial age and you're like, it just mesmerized me. Like the architecture, the art, the fact that somebody, again, a human had the capabilities and the creativity to do that before 3D printers, right? Like now you see a sculpture, it can be made by a 3D printer. Somebody did that with their hands. And then I always go back to the recognition of the hundreds and thousands of people who were enslaved that had to move all that stuff. So, you know, one person gets credit for it, but it was the millions of people who had to move this stuff to create this, that they're the real heroes. It's like anything else. The quarterback, the head coach, the driver of a NASCAR, they get all the credit, but it's the people behind the scenes who get you the title. So again, the CrossFit is a very unique demographic of athleticism when it comes to what I call one of the strength disciplines. And strongman's been around a while, but most people rely on the three major, and I did too, the three major strength disciplines of powerlifting, bodybuilding, Olympic lifting. That was the standard three to, that evolved into what I call athletic-based strength training. But now there's some components from metabolic demands and things you can manipulate that you learn from some of the high-level CrossFit coaches. Because again, the name CrossFit sometimes get a bad rap, but to me, I throw names out. I'll go into a place and evaluate the place based off the coach and the programming because even in college, there's bad coaches. (laughs) So I think what happened was, like anything else, when CrossFit first started, you get a lot of these talented athletic people who could smoke these CrossFit wads. Now, all of a sudden, they think they're an expert in CrossFit. So now they open up their own wad and think they can coach, but they're not prepared because they don't have some of the backgrounds that you need that when that obese lady that you signing up for a CrossFit class and never has exercised in 10 years, and you're putting through the same intensity effort that you just did, that's poor coaching. You see what I'm saying? And it's no different than, like I said, 30 years ago, freshman comes in, we don't know if he can lift, let's go get a max. So it's all relevant to the coach. You know, and again, let's be honest, we're talking CrossFit. Remember, we talked about good coaches versus great coaches. Who are the great CrossFit coaches? the ones who got the CrossFit champs, right? And even then, what, what do you see? When that CrossFit champ and that coach, because it's individual, loses lusters, what happens? That athlete moves to another coach, just like with boxing, right? Or, or fights or a lot of individuals or you know gymnastics. They move coaches because the relationship can't go no further. Even NASCAR, Jimmy Johnson and Chad Knauss won seven titles together and didn't end right. after a while, man, things change. So what makes a great coach? The talent, the talent. So it doesn't matter what sport. I mean, I got to coach. It's just like for me, I accept winning and losing. That's what happens when you get in the sport. But like I came on late in the Brian's career. He was chasing a fifth title. I helped him 
People will say I coached him. I was his strength and conditioning coach for his last two runs at the World's Strongest Man. We came in fourth. We came in seventh. We didn't win. We lost. That's all me too. That's not just his. The whole team lost. We didn't accomplish our goal. That sucks. He's still one of the greatest of all time. Some will call him the GOAT, right? Like we just talked about. that. Him or Big Z are the GOATs. Some people pick Big Z. Some people broke Brian. But there's not two GOATs. It just depends on what tree you're on. And the truth is, when you look at it from a perspective of 40 and 41 years old, he's still one of the best in the world at 41 years old when the guys all ahead of him were all under 30 or 30. So you got to look at the positives there. But again, our goal was to win. We didn't win. That's what you sign up for sports, right? Everybody wants to win, but you got to understand you may not win. And can you accept that? And I don't mean accept losing. I mean, accept the fact that you may not win. That's the key. Like people ask me all the time, what do you miss the most about sports? I miss the opportunity to win or lose. I'll roll the dice. You don't get that in the private sector. You know, you coach a kid on a football team and he rushes for a thousand yards and his team doesn't win a game. That's cool with you. You got to, you help the kid rush. You helped him rush for a thousand yards, but you don't care if they win or lose. You care that he got a hundred yards a game because that's how you're selling your football program to the other kids in the neighborhood. Hey man, Johnny was all state rushed for 12,000 yards. Didn't win a game in high school, but he was all state. Because he rushed for 12,000 yards. Hey, if you want to be a great high school running back, come train with me, right? That's marketing at its finest, right? That's why you got social media to put that little flyer up. You know, Johnny, be good. Rush for 12,000 yards. Come train with me if you want to be a great running back. Joe, I've always been fascinated by the tales of Herschel Walker's training regimen with his 1,000 push-ups, 200 dips, 300 sit-ups, whatever it is that he would do every single day. How much of that is folklore and how much of that is he's a genetic anomaly who was able to grow the way he did with calisthenics? Well, considering I coached Steve Smith in college and pros, and I did not coach Herschel Walker, the numbers may be exaggerated, but it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't lift a lot of weights in college. Because like I said, there's a reason why you play football and you're not a professional lifter. There's a reason why guys are who they are. And I will tell you this, and with all honesty, I trained a lot of great athletes in the NFL, and I love those guys. But if you saw how some of those guys during the season, the amount of work they did compared to what you may think, they're just very good football players. And you just got to, it's a minimal approach. Like I coach Julius Peppers. Julius is a terrific football player. He's going to probably go in the Hall of Fame, first ballot Hall of Famer. He's a basketball player at heart. We all know how basketball players feel about the weight room. Luckily for him, he's, you know, six, eight, three, six, seven and a half, three hundred five pounds of just sheer genetic anomaly. And I got him later in his career where we just said, you know, I called it small doses of excellence. And a lot of times that's what it is, man. It's a 30 or 35 minute routine just to keep them on point and in check. And like I said, a lot of it is you know, ancillary work to protect the body and do a little strength work so that they feel confident and and they got a good feel for themselves and you get them out because they don't need more than that. And, you know, that's where you have to study the athlete. College is a lot different. Like I said, you're developing a lot of these kids. Even a high-end guy needs the development in college. Uh, They get to the pros. They're pros for a reason. And it wasn't because of their lifting weight skills. So, You have to learn that. You have to build everybody. 
like I said, man, on the come up, man, when you're a hardcore guy, you're trying to bury fools and all this and that, you get to the NFL. The best thing that happened to me was going to the NFL. And I always tell people, as much as I'd love to have been at the NFL earlier in my career, I'm glad I went when I went because I was mature enough to understand what was going on. And I was well aware of how to treat an NFL athlete, how I had to earn their respect, and understood at the end of the day, the only thing that mattered was Sunday or Monday or Thursday. But predominantly, the only thing that mattered was Sunday. College, yes, Saturday matters, but a lot of your, like we were talking about earlier, culture, life, skills of life, teaching them to be grownups. A lot of that is in part of the college game. Man, I had guys that I had to leave toothbrushes in the bathroom or the weight room so they brush their teeth in the morning. Like, just stuff like that, man. Just certain things, man. Like, hey, you got to go to school. Like, oh, I want to go to the league. Well, you're not going to go to the league if you flunk out. Go to the damn study hall, right? Like, again, I'm not saying I'm some academic, you know, oh, I love academics. But, man, if you want to go to the league, you need to go to school. Like, you're not going to the league. And I always said, the one thing I've always said is, if they're going to give you a scholarship, the one thing they can't take away from you, someone's going to tell you you ain't good enough to play. The one thing they ain't going to take away from you is your degree. So you might as well get it because no one's going to come back 10 years later and say, yeah, we're taking this back from you, especially if they're paying you to go to school. And again, I went to college, man. I went to an academic university. I didn't go there to be an academic All-American. I went there to get to the NFL, and that was my fastest way to get there. Injuries changed all that, and I had to graduate. And you know what? It wound up being a, a, a good deal for me. I mean, so in the end, might as well take it if they're going to give it to you because it's a value add that costs a lot of money if they're not giving you a scholarship. I got a buddy of mine I just visited. You know, he he's a professor at the university that he went to school at. He still owes student loans. I got two degrees for 500 bucks. So I don't understand student loans, but boy, do I feel for anyone who's got one, especially nowadays, because a lot of these universities, even state schools, whew, tuition is ridiculous, man. It's almost like they're outpricing education for the individuals who want, to, who want to get educated. Like, it's amazing, but it is what it is, man. Coach, one thing I've been fascinated with is the recent announcement for flag football in 2028. Hopefully you saw that announcement. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm curious. What's your thoughts on that announcement? Uh, do you think NFL players are going to do a great job in that? And what's your thoughts on strength and conditioning for flag and football 2028? Well, it's funny you say that. I have a buddy of mine that works for USA Football, and I've talked to him about trying to get a meeting. Not just because of that, because I heard our women's national team. But even before this was coming about, I've been wanting to get more involved with USA football anyway, because of the work I've done with head and neck training and a lot of the concussion research. I just did a, a four-week self-study with a piece of equipment called Top Spin. It's more of a neurological cognitive part of training the neck and the head for a concussion type of risk reduction stuff. That was a interesting dynamic because I've trained neck my entire life from a strength component and was just got just embarrassed the first time I utilized this thing. And it just shows you how the body can adapt. But here I am, a 55-plus-year-old ex-athlete. And in four weeks' time, 12 training sessions, my static isometric neck strength improved 24%. I mean, that's – imagine if your bench press could go up 24% in a month. So I had some really good results 
and I got my butt whooped. It was a very aggressive, competitive. He gave me the hardest protocol. I got smashed the last two weeks, and I was really concerned that I wasn't going to have any results. I thought I got worse. Earlier today, I did the post-evaluation, and we got the numbers back, and I was like just ridiculously happy with how well I did. Like I said, 24% improvement in the amount of force I was able to apply, range of motion improved. I, I went from the 75th percentile of, of a combat athlete male into the 93rd <laughs> in one demographic we measured. And then in, in my age group, I went from 90% to 99% in range of motion. And that was just with 12 sessions. And like I told you, the last two weeks of the sessions, I got murdered. I felt like just, and it's so, it's so interesting. A lot of my personal, like I got so frustrated mentally because you want to be able to accomplish this and you just feel like you're just getting crushed. And so the last two weeks was extremely frustrated. I always get to a point where I'm like, I'm tired of this, man. I'm not going anywhere. And then you see these results and you're like, okay, man, what's next? Right. And so there's a lot of things I want to bring to the sport of football and USA football and, you know, flag football, even though it's not contact, you're not wearing helmets. It's a, it's going to be interesting because I know Gronk came out right away, said he wanted to be involved. Tyreek Hill, I heard state could see. I don't know if, and again, depending on how, I don't know how many NFL teams are going to want their guys trying to sneak off and play in the summer Olympics before training camp. But I do think some of the ex-athletes, like, I mean, like, like, just think. And again, I'm just throwing this guy's name out there because I think he's in ridiculous shape. Chad Ochocinco, right? I can't see him not at least looking into it. Like, again, I, I mentioned Ricky Prohl, who I play with. The guy played 17 years in a league. He's two years younger than me or one year younger than me. He could go out and play right now. I mean, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think Gronk is serious. I mean, he's that type of guy where I think I can see Gronk doing it. Yeah, so Gronk would me, be scary. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, and, and I, I wasn't a flag football guy growing up. They didn't even have flag when I came up. I came up through Pop Warner tackle since I'm nine years old. My sons came up through flag, and like I said, my oldest son didn't play but one year of tackle football till the ninth grade and got a football scholarship. So I think there's a lot of skills that can be built through flag, especially in the case of kids who are going to wind up being linemen. Because in flag, if you have the right coaches, the one thing flag will teach all of you is how to throw a football and how to catch a football if you got the right coaches. And like in my, son, my youngest son's case, he was a little bit bigger coming up. So if he plays tackle, which he did for one year, he played on the old line two years that he never played again, which was a good decision. But like he played a lot of flag, learned how to throw and catch a football, where I got a nephew who couldn't throw and catch a football because he went right in the tackle and they put him on the line. So I think regardless of what the future may tell a certain person or athlete, male or female, the skills and the fact that you're running around, because, you know, in tackle football at a certain age, man, you hand it off to the best player, everybody else stands and watch him run for a touchdown. In, in flag, it's kind of like soccer. Everybody's running around. They just don't know what to do. So I'd rather you run around not knowing what to do than stand there and watch somebody else run. So I'll be interested to see because I've watched rough touch games in leagues, but to watch a high-level flag games would be really – I'd like to see some of the techniques that coaches teach about how to ag aggressively attack a flag 
because to me, what my oldest son, what I really like there, it gives you a good ascension to watch hips because too many people watch lower body and upper body movements. That's why guys get juked, right? But if you concentrate on grabbing a flag off the hip, you're not concentrating on what every, the rest of the body's doing. So I think it gives you more of an awareness of how to break down better and attack a body when you are playing tackle because it focuses on, hey, the, the flags around the hip. Now they've got easy rip away flags and two flags aside. When my oldest son played, there was one flag. So you had to really hone in on going to get it. So I think that it's, uh, hey, man, like anything else. Like I thought they were going to put pickleball in the Olympics because that's like the hottest thing going today. But the fact that they're expressing different sports, it's good. You know, the question will be like anything else because they've had to pull sports to replace sports, and some sports have come back out. I think like anything else, what's the Olympic committee's doing? They're trying to gravitate to what the sports are that are popular in this day and age. I still think that at some point in time, we're going to see the removal of weightlifting for a lot of reasons. Do I want it to happen? No. But that's one of the groups that keeps losing spots, losing spots, to a point where, regardless, the drugs in the thing... It's funny because there's more drugs in track and field than there's in weightlifting, but the fact that the weightlifters always get in trouble is why weightlifting's on the chop. Track and field will never be on the chop. It's the most popular Olympic sport out there outside of basketball, and the only reason why basketball got super popular is they let the pros in. Exactly. I mean, just thinking about Gronk playing against any other country, that would just be insane. That would just yeah, be, that's going to be like be the dream team. Whatever happens, yeah. whatever what happens with yeah, whatever happens with the flag USA team, if it becomes ex NFL, it's going to be like the dream team. Yeah, everybody's exactly. going to play, but at the end, they really want their autographs at the end in the pictures at the end, right? <laughs> so yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, man. It's a, you know, it's going to be an interesting four year move on that. Exactly, I totally agree. And one question that I've been asking a lot of guests, and I'm curious to ask you as well. I primarily asked you guys about long-term athletic development and the specialization for basketball athletes. You know, if we want to put the kid in the best case scenario to get them into the NBA, you know, what would that age be? And I know that that whole debate has kind of been put onto one side, like you're specialized, you're not. Obviously, there's a lot of mix-ins and you could be specialized later and, you know, you could cross-train at, you know, a bunch of different ages. But I'm really curious, like for the NFL, if if you were going to put a kid in the best case scenario possible to be an NFL athlete, how would you go across planning that? Well, a lot of it is mindset. You got to have a different attitude to play football, regardless of your size. So if you see, like, again, one of my sons had that look, like he was a baller. The other one didn't. So other sports are easier to decipher. Football, it's just like a fighter. You may think you're tough, but are you tough enough to get in a ring, right? But yet you see kids like Mayweather or or guys like that. They've been fighting their whole, you know, they're in the rings at 10 years old. Like, I would have never even fathomed to get in a ring at 10 years old. They're going to the Olympics at 17 or 18 years old fighting for gold medals. So that's a hard question for me to answer because I'm a believer in overall fitness and athleticism and then kind of a, I don't want to say the European model, but I'd want to just see how things go from a, a fruition instead of me just saying you're playing football or, or you're going to do this. So I would be making something up if I tried to give you the right answer or how I would do that with football. I would just say that it's really organic because football's a lot different than other sports. 
you can't play football year-round. No one's going to wear a football uniform 12 months a year where, you know, you can kick a soccer ball, you can hit a tennis ball, you can shoot a basketball, you can swing a baseball bat year-round. You're not doing that with football. So it's a lot different. I think that's why you see a lot of football players excel in other sports, but you don't see some of the other people, like you're saying, like basketball, excel in other sports because they can play basketball year-round. You know, you can play soccer year-round. Football, you can't play. So where are you filling the gaps? Some people wrestle. Some people play basketball a lot. You know, like look, look a lineman. A lineman can wrestle and throw. You know, a skilled guy can play basketball and track and sprint. You know what I'm saying? Or jump. But what's a basketball player do? He goes from his high school season to his AAU season. What's a baseball player do? Goes from his high school season to his AAU season. Tennis, you can play year-round, right? You can get on. Uh, so it's a different sport with the different components. And maybe that's why when you look at it from an athletic standpoint, you see a lot more guys in football that have a little bit more what I call more general athleticism than sport-specific athleticism that you see at a high level in some of the other sports. Definitely, Coach. That makes a lot of sense. And just before you get out of here, I really want to say I appreciate you hopping on, but I wanted to see if you happen to have any projects or places where people could find you just so the listeners know where to go after this. Projects. Well, I mean, again, like anybody else, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you're working the game, you're on some type of social media. <laughs> uh, I spend most of my time for the demographics that usually listen to these types of podcasts on Instagram. I do actually do a, I would say a way above average job of answering direct messages off of Instagram, but they got to be legit. Like, Hey, I'm an aspiring coach. And you know, I don't, I don't think you should ask me to get you a job off of there, but you could ask me if what my contact is a help or, or stuff like that. But I do a good job of responding on that. My website is bighousepower.com definitely needs an overhaul. The biggest project I have is I'm writing my second addition to the coach's strength training playbook. I had an individual transcribe over 25 hours of presentation, so I've got about 900 pages of stuff I've got to edit and drop charts in and finish a couple of projects. I am actually, to, right before I got on with you, I'm doing a sale for my reinforcement course, which is head and neck support. And I'm going to do a short course on Prilipin's chart. If you guys are familiar with the Prilipin's chart from Louis Simmons, Westside Barbell, he brought it to fruition. It's really big in college strength and conditioning. So I made some unique changes to that. And I speak a lot. I'm speaking this week at the NSCA Vermont, New Hampshire State Clinic up at Norwich University, if anybody's going to be around. I spoke last week at Springfield College. Speaking later this year in Iowa Strength and Conditioning Association. Speaking next year at the Georgia Strength Summit. Next is that late January. And I'm speaking at the African American Strength Coaches Association in February so far. And I think got a few more things lined up. <laughs> try to stay busy, try to stay relevant. Plus, I'm doing some work with Hawk and Dynamics with force plates. Obviously, I work with Dynamics, so we're visiting a lot of schools, and we got very good equipment as my really top-flight stuff that we're trying to break down some barriers. We've got high-level competitors who have been in the, the market 
and have a name recognition that we've got to go head to head with and we're willing to compete. Like I said, we're willing to go after the wins and except sometimes you're going to lose. So yeah, I'm, again, I'm around. If you see me at a clinic, please introduce yourself. I'm not, what do they call it? They like to say I'm unapproachable. I'm a New Yorker, man. That's just the way it is, man. I mean mug when I sleep. I mean mug to my grandkids. It just, my grandkids mean mug. It's just the way it's, so uh, I love when people, oh, he's unapproachable. I said, you don't know if someone's unapproachable if you don't approach him, right? So I'm letting you know, man, if you come by, see me, chop it up, and we'll move on. But I appreciate you guys uh, thinking of me. It's a different, like I said, like I say, different genre for me to share. Uh, hopefully uh, someone got at least something out of it. And again, if I can do anything for you two guys, man, just let me know. I appreciate it, Joe. And I can say firsthand, I got something out of it. I have it in my notebook written <laughs> right next to me. The big time is where you're at. My biggest takeaway. Make, yeah, so. just make the big time where you're at, man. Frosty Westerling was a small college coach and wrote a book with that title. I appreciate your Check time, Joe. All right, we'll go. see you guys, man. Thanks again, and good appreciate luck to you guys. It. Thank you so much, you too, we'll Coach. See you. Later, brother. Bye. Later. Bye.